If you have sleep apnea and struggle with CPAP, consider that CPAPs were invented in 1980. Do you even remember 1980? Everyone's house had one telephone. There were like four TV channels. Come on. You played video games in arcades and watched movies in theaters. GPS was a folded map and a helpful gas station attendant. And social media was inviting the neighbors to come look at your vacation pictures. A lot has changed since 1980. Now, for people who struggle with CPAP, there's Inspire. Inspire is an implanted device that treats sleep apnea inside your body at the click of a remote. It's the only FDA-approved sleep apnea treatment of its kind. While you sleep, Inspire keeps you breathing normally and resting comfortably. No mask, no hose, just sleep. To learn more, visit InspireSleep.com. Inspire, sleep apnea innovation. Inspire is not for everyone. Talk to your doctor to see if it's right for you and review important safety information at InspireSleep.com. In today's episode, I'm joined by Amelia Thompson. Amelia is one of the industry's leading experts um, and alongside her team of coaches, she works with people to work on their relationship with food, their body image and their health and fitness goals. She holds a PhD in exercise physiology. She's probably the person that has challenged my belief on coaching clients the most, especially females, coming from my previous more bodybuilding physique world. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful for that from her. She has a course, EIQ Nutrition, which works to help practitioners um, work on kind of the evidence-based nutrition, but in a compassionate way. Um, and yeah, it's incredibly exciting to have her here today because when I put a question box up on my stories, I've never had so many replies saying how exciting that was, which is just an absolute testament to what you've done for the industry. So Amelia, firstly, thank you for everything you've done for me to kind of challenge how I coach clients and my education. And thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. That was really nice. Thanks so much. Oh, good. Was, I was just sitting there smiling like, oh, honoured. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, I remember when, when I met one of your friends in Phuket and she said that she was friends of you and I was just like, yeah, that's awesome. Like, I think she's great. So thank you so much. I know that obviously you've got a busy weekend in London. So yeah, we really appreciate you, you taking the time out to, to be here. Of course. And also thanks for being like open and challenged by my stuff and not just shutting it down because definitely people that have come from the bodybuilding background, like obviously you have, I have, can be very kind of shut down when, I, when they hear some of my stuff and to be open to it is great and that's what like ideally that's what everyone is like right open to other ideas so thanks for that well no thank you yeah I feel like I figured out quite early on when I got PT qualified that I was like this isn't really working for these people like why am I 30 40 year old female clients not eating chicken and rice following the meal plan weird. getting results yeah weird that a eh, in hindsight so yeah it turns out 18 year old me wasn't a very good coach um and yeah I think oh, I followed you for as long as I can remember I feel like you were still doing bikini shows when I first or you'd not long stopped when I first followed you so which means that I basically got quite lucky that I, f I found you and a few other key people very early on in my career which meant that I kind of didn't spend too long in that not so good trajectory mm -hmm. so yeah a little bit of luck involved in that really yeah, that was, I finished competing in 2017. So yeah, yeah that would have been a long, well, how many years ago was that? Five years ago. Yeah, five years ago. So yeah, it would have been, yeah, either that year or the year before I've been coaching nine years now. So yeah, okay. it was very early on. So wow. yeah, a long time. Lucky you, you're blessed. <laughs> I would agree with that statement, especially since, uh, yeah, since you're coming here. So Really, I feel like obviously you've had a kind of an interesting route into the industry yourself. You've done a lot of amazing things. You were, I mean, you ranked came second in the UK in the end, didn't you, in bikini? Yeah, but I would like to stipulate that I came second in one federation and I, I don't like to blow my own trumpet too much. There are about four federations. And at the time I was second in Britain 
for my class, of which there were quite a few classes in that federation. But yeah, I did come second, Bryn. Yeah, it's it's always, yeah, yeah, great to, <laughs> great to kind of frame that. Um, but yeah, I mean, so talk to me a little bit about, about the origin story, if that's okay, Amelia. I mean, how did you get into the industry? How did you get into competing? And, and I know that shaped where you are now. So talk to me a little bit about that, if that's okay. Sure. So um, my background is... I'm going to try and be chronological with this which sometimes I struggle with because I'm not good at math but I used to have disordered eating habits from like 15, 16-ish I struggled with binge eating um, that kind of binge restrict classic binge restrict cycle of like a 90s kid um, or am I an 80s kid or a 90s kid if I was born in 86 you know that generation in between Mill- millennials right yeah. I was very much I very much subscribed to diet culture I loved Kate Moss she was like plastered all over my like my living room like genuinely had framed Vogue covers of Kate Moss um subscribed to you know nothing tastes as good as skinny feels and um used food as my emotional regulator in some way which I didn't know that's what I was doing at 20 years old um so I struggled with disordered eating for about 15 years or something like that um when I was 20 25 maybe I started going to the gym I had a bit of a a not a great relationship and I had a lot of friends so I was at Loughborough Uni which the ratio of men to women there is eight to one so I was having a field day but also um all of my friends were men pretty much so when I was going through a hard time and I used to just I was still in this binge restrict cycle they were like come on let's start going to the gym like let's like start lifting weights and feel strong and so I did and I loved it and at that time so this was then into like 2012, 2013. If a woman went to the gym and started lifting weights, then someone would always be like, oh, when are you going to compete? When are you going to compete? And at that time, I was like, I didn't even know what competing was. So a guy in the gym showed me these a couple of these bikini athletes. And I was like, oh, they're amazing. They don't have that much muscle. Like, they just look glamorous. And little did I know they had shed tons of muscle. They were just extremely lean. And it wasn't glamorous at all. But um I found I kind of fell into competing and what that did was gave me a bit of a um a shiny cover to my disordered eating so it was like you can be in a binge restrict cycle but as long as you lose weight for your show and you get a trophy and then you rebound properly and or say rebound properly you know reverse properly and come back in it's fine it doesn't matter if it's disordered because you're winning trophies so I did that for four years um and at the same time as that I was studying so I did my PhD I like I got a master's in sport nutrition, PhD in physiology, and then I went on to lecture at Manchester Metropolitan Uni as a sport nutrition lecturer. So loved my job, and I, so had all of the knowledge. But whilst I was teaching and stuff, I, I still found myself like binge restricting throughout my competing life. And I was like, why have I got I've got a PhD in this area? I teach this stuff every day. Why am I still struggling with binge restrict? I, I, I'm happy in my body everything seems like it's fine what the hell's going on and so at that point I decided to like document my own journey so I started writing blogs and I thought right, I'm going to look into the research I've got the capacity to read research I've got access to everything that I could possibly want through my work I'm just going to find everything that I can and so that's where I kind of delved into the research around binge eating and extreme diets and what that does to your psychology and your physiology and and I started talking about it and I said I remember a blog I wrote that I was like, I'm going to start eating with chopsticks because this will help me be more mindful. And that was like 2000 and I don't know, 16 or something like that. Didn't Nobody in fitness was talking about mindful eating. Nobody was talking about relationships with food. Nobody was talking about struggling with their own relationship with food. So when I was saying, oh, I've just eaten 10 Pop-Tarts in a row, people were like, oh, this happened to me too. But, you know, all under the radar. I didn't know binge eating disorder was even an eating disorder back in the day. So, yeah, I kind of came through all of that 
finished competing and, and by that point I kind of had a good grasp on these are all the things that contribute to a good relationship with food and I did all of that stuff and really it wasn't until I was about 31 that I really came through it all so 15 16 years later where I kind of found a more like peaceful place um and that's kind of how I started working with people that I do now just quite organic I think just from talking about my own stuff and the research that I found yeah no thank you for sharing that I mean that must have been tough to kind of let go of that maybe identity maybe attached to like bikini um you know being lean how did you manage that like what was the turning point if there was kind of one specific moment where you were like okay there's a problem here I've identified there's a problem how did you realize that um good question I I always had I, I don't know if you had this but I always identified as being like trying to be as thin as I could so I'd found my identity in my body way before bodybuilding. I was always the fit one. I, I used to run, I did a marathon one time um, and I'll cling to that forever. It's one uh, more than me. <laughs> I'll never again. Yes. Um, but I did do it. Like I, was, I was always the fit person, the quote unquote fit person. Um, so I always found my identity in that. And it wasn't until I went through a, a horrible relationship, I kind of broke up with that. We broke up. I went to California for three months and um, really delved into mindfulness and meditation. Spent a lot of time on my own and hiked a lot. And this sounds really privileged and I recognise that that it, it is, right? Um, but I went to meditation classes like every single day. And, and one day I just realised, I was reading like a Brene Brown book because, you know, she is my idol. And she talked about numbing and she said, you know, like we often use these coping mechanisms to numb our feelings. And logically of course now I think how could I not have known that it's everything that I do but at the time I'd never thought about my relationship with food in that way of oh you're just numbing things and I and I sat and I journaled a lot and I realized the origins of my binge eating from when I was a teenager and I, and I just had a, like a big breakdown and I remember crying to to the friend that we have in common actually when I was in California and I was voice noting her and I said I've just realized I've been doing this all along and she was like well, that makes perfect sense and honestly from that that week things started to change and started to improve just from the awareness of it and then obviously after that like it's not a smooth sailing kind of road after you have that realization healing is not linear but um it definitely changed from that point I think so I think it's a I think awareness is the the trigger point so I imagine if someone's listening to this they're probably obviously already on that first step of maybe being aware that there's something to do with their relationship with food they'd like to improve otherwise probably not going to be listening to this episode <laughs> so step one's probably happened what can someone do to maybe like cultivate that they've you know okay I want to become a little bit more aware I want to maybe try and figure out why I'm feeling this way you said maybe like using numbing are there some questions that someone can ask you've touched on like meditation journaling like mm -hmm. yeah just elaborate on some kind of questions or strategies if that's okay that someone could use yeah so meditation's great because it encourages you to become more aware of your thoughts and often when we're let's take emotional eating as an example disordered eating can look a lot different on lots of people but I'm just going to use that as a bit of a proxy often when we emotionally eat we don't even make space to even notice that we're feeling anything we don't feel anything we are like you know knee deep in biscuits before we've actually realized that that's what we're doing um so meditation can be really good because it creates it helps us create a pause between stimulus and response i.e the urge to overeat and then the eating the more you can practice meditation regularly, the more you get better at putting a pause in and you become able to respond, not react. Do you meditate? Yeah. Yeah. So do you, do you know what I mean when you say that, that's that flip? Yeah. I, I, 
because I think that what you kind of said there is also kind of a, a Victor L. Frankl quote, right? Mm-hmm. Um, from a man's search to meaning. And I feel like meditation was always one of those things that I, you know, I lived in Thailand for years. Everyone was doing, and I was like, eh, I don't need that. And then I read, read a man's search for meaning, and you read that quote, and I was like, I should probably meditate. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. And a lot of people hate it. And they say, I can't meditate because the voices in my head are just too loud. And it's like, that's why you want to meditate like that's everyone has these voices in their head and meditation helps you distance yourself from those the one thing i would say is there if you know if you have a um, trauma capital t trauma in your background or small t right if you have trauma in your background or you have adhd or maybe neurodivergent in some way it can be a little bit more challenging and there are other ways to practice mindfulness and so that is a bit of a disclaimer i'm not saying everyone has to meditate but if you do have the capacity even just doing two minutes of meditation a day is just is fantastic journaling is really really good um people often don't know what to write when they're journaling i actually on my website i have and i'm sure you'll put this link somewhere but i have like a whole load of journaling prompts specifically around emotional eating and overeating so you can look at those but um things like what happened before the event so did i just have a fight with my partner was i really hungry um was it the first time that i'd been alone all day had i not eaten enough that day really questioning what happened beforehand um and then thinking about even like what my i like to call them vulnerability factors um did you get enough sleep last night um like where where are you feeling anxious already because of something else like really looking at the factors preceding your emotionally ing these things can be almost easy to recognize because a lot of people will say to me oh boredom eat a boredom eat and they say well and i'll say well what what do you do to manage your boredom and they say well i eat and it's like, okay, well, what else can you do? And it, often we know why we're doing it or we think we know why we're doing it, but we don't have the alternative strategies in place. But some, sometimes we don't know why we're doing it and we say, I'm fine. I'm absolutely fine. And for 15 years, I would have said, I'm fine. Genuinely in that moment, I was living my best life. I was partying all the time. I had boyfriends. I was had loads of friends. I was succeeding in my career. I was fine. Um there was an unmet need somewhere and that unmet need for me was just the ability to actually be authentic with myself because I never let myself feel any sort of negative emotion I would just suppress it with food because I was too scared to feel that negative emotion um, and you see this a lot of people who identify as like the positive person the one that's got all their shit together sorry um, the, you know the outward game face in person and you see that a lot with people like that so you you almost can, you can convince yourself genuinely that you are good and I'm a positive person, of course there's nothing there. And that's sort of a bit harder to identify. And so to, to identify things like that, it's like, do how comfortable do I feel being vulnerable? How comfortable do I feel crying? When was the last time I cried? Do I feel, if you look at, if you Google Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right, you can see the kind of, um, our human needs in order to reach this quote-unquote self-actualization at the top of the pyramid right but it's things like love belonging physical needs safety etc and look at that and think do I feel genuinely fulfilled in each of those aspects of my life that's what a therapist would probably a therapist wouldn't make you do that but that's some of the stuff that they would go through um on a deeper level so just even looking at that and being aware of that of saying well where do I feel like I don't have that example safety you might think well I live in a house I'm in a westernized country like everything is fine but maybe you don't feel safe in your relationship maybe you know your partner is a bit avoidant and so they don't communicate and they're like they don't come home sometimes or they don't text you back and you you feel unsafe maybe you've got an anxious attachment style so you feel unsafe so it's a really like there's so many reasons why we can have these 
relationships with food, it's, it's a tough one to kind of start to unpick, which is why journaling, there doesn't need to be a structure to it, but just journaling how you feel, what stories you're telling yourself, what happened that day, it, physically and psychologically, and it can be really, really helpful. But it, it, I know that's kind of, I've just word vomited a lot of stuff. <laughs> that's okay. No, no, brilliant. I, I completely agree. I mean, that that gives me like a, a few questions and a few different trails of thoughts, but I guess that the first one where you would start again, probably chronologically with someone is if they were in a little bit of, I guess, almost denial about that, right? Like, as you said, no, I am good. Um, they've maybe got a bit of a disconnect from like kind of how they see themselves and they're self-sabotaging. I mean, where would you start with that client if they came to, to work with you and you feel like there's something there and, you know, and they don't see it? How would you address that? The thing, the self-sabotage thing is an interesting one because I've definitely reframed this over the last couple of years for me. We all think and we all, a lot of us say we self-sabotage in some part of our life and it happens a lot with dieting and fat loss, right? I like to think of it more like self-protection, like what these reasons that we're overeating to for a reason um, and we're quote-unquote sabotaging on our diet for a reason and the important thing is looking at why that might be. So on a surface level, if it was a client, I'd say, you know, like, what? why do you think this has not worked for you in the past? Um, what are the reasons that you felt like you've overeaten in the past? Why do you feel like you haven't maintained things in the past? Like, those types of questions are really, really important. But then if it's if it's overeating and that kind of self-sabotage on fat loss, I would say, like, well, what benefit is that bringing to you? I'd say, it's, no, it's not a benefit. I hate it. It's like, there is. There is a benefit to that. And the compassionate way of looking at this and that's what we want to do right is say okay well it's totally human to overeat like we all overeat um but really looking at okay well if we can figure out what purpose that's serving then we can meet that need somewhere else and sometimes it's like a fear of success or a fear of fear of failure right a lot of people will say well when i've lost this weight then i'll start dating or I'll go for this job or I'll wear a bikini and, and, and whatever it may be. And actually, when we get closer to that, that's actually a really scary thing because we don't want to do those things and it's terrifying. So what we'll do is we'll sabotage ourselves uh, and come back so that we won't ever have to get there, right? So there's like that fear. Um, but other times it could be like, maybe you've overeaten on and off since you were 16. And actually overeating for you when you were 16 was your way of giving yourself comfort when you couldn't get comfort from people around you. And so as you start to give that up you're like there's a part of you inside that's like no no like I need that comfort that's important to me and although yes it's it's technically still a choice you're you have these kind of habit loops in your brain that genuinely are soothing to you they help regulate you and they have done for 15 20 30 40 years um and so you have to make space to say like okay there's a therapeutic technique called internal family systems which have you heard of it before actually haven't no it's incredible there's a really good book called no bad parts um okay. that kind of touches on this and obviously it's a therapeutic technique so i don't use it specifically but it's the idea of noticing these parts of yourself uh, and treating them with openness and saying like almost open up and being like i hear you i know that you want to be soothed I know you want to be comforted, and but we don't need to do it like this anymore. We're adults. I'm going to comfort you in a different way, and I'm going to soothe you in a different way, rather than being like, I hate this part of me. Just shut up, and I'm just going to like try and starve it out. Because that doesn't work. What you resist persists. So instead of pushing everything away, it's more about opening everything, like bringing everything in, which is, can be quite a scary thing. Yeah, it can. I remember when I, I heard you say, I think the exact words were, well, it's serving you somehow. Mm. And I just remember watching that on Instagram one evening um, 
and just you know and you just feel like personally attacked <laughs> yeah and that made me that made me question a lot of things and it sounds so simple but the idea that what you're doing whilst negative on the surface is actually serving you somehow otherwise you wouldn't be doing it so just like you need a correct medical diagnosis to have the relevant treatment you would need the correct diagnosis okay well why are you doing this why is it serving you to then then address that but as you just said that that is incredibly scary so I've kind of got two questions on that I mean if you're you know a a person listening that's trying to work through this by themselves and that is scary and confrontational how would you kind of go about that and also if you're a, a personal trainer in particular a male personal trainer working with a female coach how do you maybe create a safe space to facilitate those conversations, which can be quite quite uncomfortable, especially when there's maybe, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a gender difference? I think if you're trying to work through it yourself, like that's where journaling is really helpful. And I would recommend reading a book like No Bad Parts. I think actually um that's a really good place to start, probably for everyone. And again, I'm not saying anyone should be using these techniques on anyone that you're not unless you're a therapist and you're qualified in IFS, right? But it's just to open your eyes to start to think about oh I wonder where that might have come from I think if you're doing it for yourself just think about what those habits are that you don't like about yourself and uh, there's two things here one is a task that I do with my clients which I think is really important is often when we have habits that we don't like we're really critical of them and one thing that I recommend everyone do is to write down everything it is that you don't like about that why what you feel about it how it makes you feel etc and then like have a wee break and come back to it and write a letter from somebody that you really love whether they're dead or alive um and almost from their perspective write what they would say to you about that and then just sit with that and it helps you realize that one you can speak to yourself kindly that that person didn't say that you said that but two that's how that's what compassion looks like and that's really important that we treat ourselves with that kind of respect often we think if we treat ourselves with compassion we're going to um like let go of our goals we're not going to try any harder we're not going to achieve things but we know from the research this the opposite happens and the more compassionate people tend to achieve more and we can deal with things we can deal with setbacks easier and we can keep going and we can push ourselves harder so um that's the first thing so that you're coming at it from a compassionate stance i think and then and then the next thing is i think journaling on it and saying like what benefits do i get from this and and it's kind of as simple as that although it sounds it might not be easy to come up with it really think about like what am I trying to achieve with fat loss what am I holding off until I achieve fat loss what does my body when I'm smaller mean to me what does my body when I'm bigger mean to me I think sometimes we also say things like with motivational interviewing often we'll say and like PTs kind of on a baseline level we'll get taught like um what's the benefits of being in a smaller body like what's the benefits how do you want to feel when you get there and it's like that's important right but it's also saying what's how does it feel to let go of like where you are and sometimes we have to grieve like you know I'll have clients have to grieve their larger bodies um grieve their emotionally ink because especially with emotionally eating it's genuinely like a nice thing sometimes like in the short term it, it's not like we hate emotionally eating all the time we don't like it the next day we don't like it when we're struggling with our fat loss or if it's a consistent thing but normal emotionally and a bit of emotionally and can genuinely bring us comfort because there's a whole world that validates that now right with your instagram food porn hashtags i mean i think i saw a study correct me if i'm wrong but there was a study which was looking at people searching for food porn hashtags and looking at that type of content when on contest prep was actually like a precursor to ending up with disordered disordered eating that was like one of the first things Mm -hmm. that they noticed people would would do is start fantasizing about 
about food um, and there was a very strong correlation between that being like the first thing that started changing in people and then developing disordered eating habits as a result of prep prep went on so that was kind of like a red flag that you can look out for that was a really interesting paper that is um, interesting. so yeah there's this whole world that validates that behavior now and i feel like as soon as you can find a, a group of people that validate that behavior you normalize it right yeah yeah but also not but also emotional eating sometimes is normal and it's so human and i emotionally eat sometimes and it's totally fine it's just when it becomes your only coping mechanism that's when it can be problematic um but it does soothe you to some degree and so you do have to let that go and and that and although objectively you're like yeah I want to reduce that still it's sad because that's a big part of your life that you're having to let go and again that comes down to that parts work of like being open to just saying I appreciate you like I appreciate the fact that I binge ate I mean objectively like I don't want to say that I've binge eating on and off for 15 years but realistically what that did was protect me from really hard feelings when I was younger that I didn't know how to deal with and so making space and being like to that part of me like I'm grateful because it, it protected me right um, and I think that's important and then I suppose the second part of your question it's really important that you work within your scope of practice I don't mean you personally but as PTs we so we want to fix everything we're like I'll be your therapist I'll be your nutritionist I'll be your PT I'll do all of these things and it's like realistically that's a lot of that stuff is outside of our scope I like to just encourage people to to more think and I mean in terms of the work I do is slightly different right but and we have a therapist on the team and stuff like that but um with PTs maybe on EIQ nutrition well I would say more like encourage them to journal and to do the self-reflection for themselves and you can pose these questions that I've just said you can say like why don't you journal on these types of questions and see what comes up or if you're really if someone's really struggling advise them to seek therapy um especially in the uk talk therapy is often you can self um refer for that which is amazing and and doing that alongside pt is is amazing so i think to be honest i think it's as a pt it's your job to kind of support them to do the work for themselves as opposed to you then saying okay i'm going to go and heal all of these things for you um because we, we all, a lot of us want to fix, right? Yeah. A lot of us in PT want to fix it. Exactly, right? I have my own issues and now look, let me help other Ex- people. It's a coping mechanism. Yeah, exactly. And to some degree, it can really help with your empathy. But other times it's like, you can often end up stepping over, yeah. overstepping, overstepping. Yeah. I feel like that, that comes with maturity in the industry a little bit as well, doesn't it? When you're in your first two to three years of coaching, you're like, maybe got a bit of a point to prove. You want to be a problem solver for everyone. That just comes with feeling like you're new to any industry, doesn't it? And then... The longer I've done this, the more I've referred out, which doesn't really make sense, does it? But that just comes down to, yeah, you know, being mature enough to realise, yeah, this is out of my scope. But how how do you, I mean, do you have any advice on like setting that relationship up successfully? So again, if you're a PT listening or you're the client and you feel like you maybe need to bring some sort of therapist into that relationship, any advice on, on setting that up in terms of like communication channels, how to get referrals, where to look for, you know, great people, obviously feel free to mention your team here. <laughs> All of us. <laughs> uh, no, We're I, the best. <laughs> we totally are. Um, I think it's a good question. I, there's actually a website called, in the UK at least, the IAPT website. It's not called the IAPT website, but if you t- Google IAPT, um, that's actually certain parts of the UK you can self-refer for therapy. Um, so that's a really useful website to know. I, one of my GP friends told me about that because I hadn't heard of it before. Um, but I think in terms of, it, sometimes you can feel a little bit awkward approaching a client to say, well, I think that you need therapy. So it's less about saying that and it's more about, oh, it's really interesting. I would say something like, you know, it's, your self-awareness is really improving around these habits. Um, it would probably be really useful to talk out with someone who's who's qualified in that. 
Um, and that's how I would generally approach it. And I've had I've had clients that I've referred to, to therapy many times before I had a therapist working within the team. Um, so just kind of framing it like that, and it's and I think it's really important that you you're not you emphasize to your client that you're not sacking them and you're not saying I can't work with you anymore. You're saying I really want to ensure that you get the best for your overall health. That's part of my job as a PT. But your mental health is is beyond my scope of practice, other than supporting you to exercise and 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 eat well, right? Um, so framing it from that position of health is this flourishing model of like physical relationships, um, psychology, mental health, physical health, spiritual health, all of these things. And as a PT, we can only do so much. And so I think it's just framing it as like I'm here to fully support your health, and this is what I'd recommend. And then. I would always say, especially in the UK, the GP is your first port of call. Like it, it, the GPs, I know that people, sometimes people give them a really bad rep because they are limited, obviously, on resources and it's tough, but I, it's it's a shame because they are genuinely out to help yeah, us. Yeah, they're doing their best, they're, aren't they? Yeah, so all, I, would always, I would always say that. Um, I don't know of a huge amount of actual, like, specific therapists that work on relationship with food stuff. Genuinely, it's one of the reasons that all of my team are getting qualified because... I actually don't know. Um, but usually talk therapy or CBT, if you're struggling with something like binge eating, regular binge eating, and, and you think it might be binging disorder, then your GP will refer you to somebody and usually it will be CBT for that. Cool, awesome. No, great, great advice. I feel like with a lot of this, obviously if the client doesn't feel like they can communicate, or whether it's a client to their personal trainer or you know just in general, then you don't know that the, the problem's there. So any advice on getting people to open up a little bit more? We're maybe not you know talking about obviously not going out of your scope, not not being able to give advice back, but just facilitating a safe space to have that, have that conversation. If you feel like, yeah, maybe I do want to feel like I can be a bit more open with my personal trainer or vice versa, you're a personal trainer and you're thinking, yeah, I'd love my clients to be a bit more open with me. I feel like they're holding some some, some stuff back. Any advice on yeah, creating more of a kind of a safe space and, and facilitating better communication? Yeah, there's a couple of things. I think one of the most important things is that you as a PT are congruent. And what I mean by that is you are authentic. You know your values. You show up and you stand in your values. And I don't just mean in that one hour session. I mean, when you're on social media, when you're in your Facebook group, when you're like whatever you're doing, you are truly authentic and you are congruent so that on, your client can only kind of get to the point where they feel comfortable being themselves if you are being yourself. And that can be really hard as a PT, especially if you're struggling with your own stuff and you, you're showing up and you're like, I've got to put this game face on and I've got to be professional. And, and of course, to some degree, you can't show up at a PT session crying your eyes out because you've just been dumped, for sure. But being a human being is really actually really 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 important um so that is one thing i would say and i think sometimes we struggle with that because we think that we just have to look like we've got our shit together all the time and to me having your shit together means also being like oh i'm having a bit of a rough day and you when you say things like that you're not offloaded onto your client it's not their response like it's not for them to pick that up from you but you are saying it's okay to have a bit of a shit day let's get this done and you still have your game face on you're still like yeah like this is it I think that's important um and I also think there's this phrase called unconditional positive regard which is um comes from like a therapeutic phrase and um it's this idea of just always giving your clients unconditional positive regard so if they say I've had a really rough week you make space and you say do you want to talk about it so that they feel that they can and you're not trying to fix it you're not saying okay well I think that you shouldn't text your boyfriend back and I think that you should say this to your mother-in-law you're not doing any of that you're saying 
I'm really sorry, that sounds really, really rough. And then once they've got it out, you say, right, okay, let's crack on with our session or whatever it is. So you're saying, I can hold space for this. I'm not trying to fix anything. That's what we're here to do. We're just hold, here to hold space for what they want to say. Um, and then when people do say stuff, like, again, just saying, I reckon, I hear you, I see you, this is really rough. Or if they've had a bad week and they've been emotionally in or whatever it may be, you're saying, oh, do you know what? Like, this totally happens. We're all human. I'm really, like, I love that you've come to me and told me this stuff and, I celeb- and celebrating celebrating those things rather than like it amazes me and you'll obviously have seen these these pts that are shaming their clients on social media or shaming their clients saying well you just don't have enough willpower to stop emotionally you know whatever it is and it's like we could do a whole episode just on that so i know but i don't really talk about it anymore because i'm so bored of talking about it but it makes me forget that it still exists and then someone will send me something on social media and i think oh bloody hell like that people still do that so just do the opposite of that do, like anything like shame based avoid it at all costs no no that's brilliant is there any um, resources you'd recommend for personal trainers wanting to develop more of those kind of compassionate communication skills eiq nutrition yeah, great, <laughs> of great course start. um definitely that um there's a book called motivational interviewing and nutrition yeah um very good book have you read it yeah i have read that many years ago that was a, a phil learning recommendation ah, so yeah classic um so i would read that um I honestly think a lot of this stuff, I get asked these questions quite a lot around like food and nutrition and stuff like that. I think a lot of this stuff comes from reading books that are, or listening to people that are outside of food and nutrition. Like to, to me, Brene Brown changed my entire life and it's, she, it's quite cliche to say that now, but when I first read her book in 2018 in the UK, we didn't really know who she was particularly, right? So that was five years ago. Um, now everyone kind of does but she genuinely changed the entire trajectory of my own life but also my career because she taught me to think about vulnerability and empathy and compassion and her Adam Grant he has a great podcast and he talks a lot of stuff about he talks more about leadership but I really like the way that he talks about leadership in terms of collaboration and, and again it's Simon Sinek he also does some good stuff and he talks about leadership but it's about what I think and Emma and I have this discussion quite a lot around business is that the skill and the the great pts can listen to things that are nothing to do with nutrition and fitness and make it about nutrition and fitness she's she is like this economics like whiz and she always can relate these things two things together and i think that's a skill and so when you're trying to develop your coaching skills it's less about looking at nutrition specific stuff and fitness specific stuff and more about like who do you look up to like if, if i look up to anyone in the industry well there, apart from the people I have around me there, there aren't that many people but in terms of outside the industry it would be people like Brene Brown who lead with vulnerability and an open heart and have this magical way of creating mass space for people to be themselves and that's what changed the way that I coach so I think it's about looking outside a little bit. I've got a, a, a question that I wasn't kind of expecting to ask actually but since you brought up kind of being a leader for your clients is that something that you struggled with at all when you first got into coaching showing up as a leader and, and almost feeling worthy of that? No, no. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think hmm, I never. Do you know what? I, I didn't, in the sense of I never saw myself as a leader. Uh, probably until the last couple of years. I think before I was always very much like this is a collaboration, and with person centered coaching, there's no directive, right? So, um, with person centered coaching, like if anything, the client is the director, and you are the, like the follower. 
and that's how I try and coach so whenever I've coached before I've never felt like a leader when I work with clients now I never think I'm not telling them what to do they're telling me this is what I need and I'm structuring it in a way that they need it so I don't feel like a leader in that sense um but obviously when you're trying to build a business and create a cohesive group of clients and have certain values you are a leader of your business and so that is important in that sense but then so but I think in the last couple of years I did struggle with like the leadership role of you know taking on new coaches and EIQ nutrition and things like that I definitely felt imposter syndrome for quite a long time not so much anymore but for sure because um I don't know why that is I think it's just being a millennial yeah I am um, yeah not that I wanted to make the episode about me but when you said that I was like yeah I really struggled with that for a few years so I was just just interested Did to, you? to hear your, in what way? To hear your thoughts I mean obviously as you you say like coaching is yeah, you're not leading it's a partnership yeah they're leading obviously 100% I feel like there's still an element of it where you've got to feel like you are worthy of success and, and worthy of being someone that people should uh, follow look up to listen to their advice ultimately pay you for coaching right um and the idea that my words kind of had weight was something i struggled with for a long time people would come up to me and be like do you remember when i bumped into you in this bar and you said this to me and i'm just like that was four years ago and like, like how do you remember that and the idea that that was memorable for them and something would stick with them and be powerful was something i struggled with for a long time i think just from a place of my own insecurity um why, why would my words have weight? Why, why would someone listen to my advice or, or, or pay me for my time? And, and definitely got into a lot of habits around self-sabotaging business as a result of that. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah, because, yeah, those comments, they go against your idea of what your self-worth is, right? So it feels very incongruent. Yeah, mine was low. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's real, that's really interesting. Actually, weirdly, I spoke to another male coach who explained something very, very similar. I hear it less from female coaches and I don't know why that is. Interesting. Um, I don't know if it's, I, I think with imposter syndrome, all men and women feel it and we all struggle with our self-worth uh, to varying degrees, right? So I don't think it's gender specific, but in terms of the coaching conversation, I've definitely heard that from male coaches, but less so women. So I don't know why that would be. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can't, can't speak on behalf of any <laughs> other male coaches, but I feel like it's probably semi-natural within reason, right? In your first few, few years of doing anything, but yeah identifying that it's a problem and admitting there's a problem which was uncomfortable in itself was was definitely important and it, it helped me grow exponentially i kind of doubled my my weekly pt sessions within the space of a handful of months just from kind of yeah realizing that so but um anyway that's going to be less relevant for for people <laughs> listening um something you you mentioned earlier uh, amelia was around like grieving um and i'd like kind of love you to elaborate on that a little bit if that's okay when you said about you would get clients to grieve their their you know that their size their relationship with food issues did you mean that in terms of like that they are kind of letting that person go and and changing to become someone new or, or what did you mean by that great question also um i think uh, what did i mean i just mean let like trying to let something go whatever that may be the identity that you had as somebody in a larger body because i try and encourage everyone to let go of their identity as this egoic thing anyway and, and focus on like who you are as a person that's that's never going to change your body can change but realistically you are still you but you you might have to grieve the safety that being in a larger body you feel brought to you i did a podcast last night with somebody who said um she's in a slightly larger body than she used to be and she said um i much prefer it because i get less male attention now and I don't want it and I feel safer in my body now 
And the reason that she had mentioned that was because one of the reasons we know that um, girls develop disordered eating habits, one potential reason is because as they hit puberty, it feels unsafe. It feels unsafe. So sometimes we we, uh, restrict our food to keep ourselves small because it feels safer or we overeat because it feels safer. And that can... And so when we're in our 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, we haven't maybe recognised that yet, to, to then say, I'm going to completely remove this, what feels like your safety mechanism for your life that you've had for the last 40 years, that's terrifying. And it's sad because it's like, okay, well, what, what's next? And so it's just about, it's not like saying that you are going to cry and go through the five steps of grief, which even if they're actually legit like it's not about saying that it's just about saying okay well can you can you journal on this can you make space for what you're giving up here and that's as simple as it kind of needs to be but it, it might be like sometimes when people go through the binge eating like process of removing binge eating it can be quite a, a heavy thing initially because it's like we grieve the life that we we grieve the life that we've had and we grieve the time that we've wasted on food preoccupation we grieve the time like the thoughts that we've had and all of that stuff and it's sad because we think that well that was my life and that's what I chose to do with those parts of my life that's really hard to accept so it's just about again not just not sitting there saying I'm so pissed off at myself for spending 15 years of my life binging like what an idiot it's about saying oh like I'm I'm sad that I did that but now I'm making the change to move forward so it's just again it's just about making space for allowing whatever feelings do come up and not expecting you yourself to just be instantly happy because you've stopped emotionally eating like that doesn't that doesn't happen it doesn't ever happen you can be proud of yourself and a year down the line you'll still be really proud of yourself but you're not going to you're not going to wake up one day and just be like and it's just going to all go away yeah because that's i think that's the biggest thing i've took from you is you can't start to make meaningful healthy change until it's coming from a place of compassion you know, you can't hate your way into these changes. And that's something that no one ever really t- teaches you how to look for in a consultation, do they? Um, you know, your client's telling you whatever they're telling you about their goals. And then maybe you learn a little bit more as a coach and you start learning to ask why and listen more and ask more leading questions. But you never learn to look out for kind of red flags and what they're saying about if it's coming from a not healthy place, if it's coming from a place of hatred or yet yeah, not loving their body. Um so yeah, I mean, a touch on that a little bit, if that's okay. Like, how can you, as a coach, maybe help identify if a client is coming at it from a place of, of compassion? Great question. Because most people, when you start working with someone, they're probably not coming at it from a place of compassion. They're probably coming at it from a place of I hate my legs, I hate my body. My husband says that I've gained weight. My wife says I've gained weight. Whatever you know, that's usually where people are coming at it from. And I think it's important not to invalidate that because it's totally okay, obviously, to say if you don't like having fat around your midsection, you don't like having fat around your midsection. There's no emotion attached to that. It's just about saying, that's fine, that's your preference, that's fine. We don't want to invalidate that. Um, But I think it's a process of just kind of initially catching your self-talk or your client's talk when they do check-ins or when you're talking to yourself. Uh, some one of the things I get my clients ask some of my clients to do is to count for one day in the week how many times that they talk critically to themselves um and they keep a tally of it and then they'll report back to me the next week and then what we'll do is it doesn't really matter what the number is sometimes it's enough for them to say my god I, I was called myself names 45 times in one day no wonder I feel rubbish and sometimes that's enough but sometimes then we'll also have to do some work of saying okay well you spoke to yourself like rubbish 45 times today one day this week you're going to count again and your limit is 30 times 
And after 30 times, you're not like, that's it. You're not allowed to do it. And the benefit of that is realising that you are not your thoughts. You are the listener of your thoughts. And if you can recognise that you don't have to fall into the stories that you're telling yourself, you can then recognise that you can just stop them. And I'm not saying it's as easy as saying, oh, there's a thought in my head. I'm just not going to entertain it. This is why meditation can be so great to help you distance yourself from those. But if you are somebody who has a lot of negative self-talk, recognizing that you're not those thoughts, recognizing that you can choose not to fall into that, go down into that downward spiral and ruminate on that thought is really, really powerful. And we'll sometimes do that with body checking too. Count how many times in a day you body check, look in the mirror, take your scale weight, um, pinch your skin, things like that. And then again, it's like, well, no wonder I don't feel good in my body because I'm like, I'm touching it or I'm weighing myself or wearing uncomfortable clothes this many times in the day. So that can be really, really helpful. Um, And then I think it's just one of those things that just has to build over time. So if if you're somebody checks in with you and they're saying, um, I I feel really guilty or they call them like like a pig or anything like that, you call them out on it compassionately and you say, okay, well, you didn't. We don't talk like that. Like this is the reality, like this is actually what the situation is. And you have to set the tone for that and there's some really cool research around cognitive reframing with clients and how actually even six months after relationships ended clients can find themselves reframing and not even even if the coaching wasn't on reframing just from seeing a coach cognitively reframe um clients can then pick up on that and start doing that for themselves so that's one of our key jobs is to consistently do that um and then I'm trying to think what else it's quite a tough it's quite a tough one because I think it's really like you set this like you set the bar so the way that you talk about yourself the coaches that are going on social media saying like I'm so fluffy right now or whatever and it's like you're lean and all of this bullshit and you just think that's your that you're setting the tone for your clients when you do stuff like that I did that once Martina called me out on it did she I yeah, did she, I, comment, she commented on one of my posts been like you're not fluffy stop stop that shit <laughs> I was like cheers Martina um, so, <laughs> I've done it once I'm sure yeah yeah we live and learn yeah exactly right yeah not 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 perfect far from perfect um no there's some really great tips in there i mean counting getting clients to to tally up how many times yeah they use negative self-talk um body check i absolutely love that they're two strategies i've actually if i'm being honest embarrassingly never used with a client so i'll definitely be be implementing that it's not embarrassing i made it up there's no way that you would know to do that well okay well yeah i feel like they're they're the kind of things that when you say it well that's quite obvious that that would make a lot of sense to 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 use that but just never just never thought of it um you've probably heard the story i heard this on a podcast a while back it was a bit of a business context but they were telling this story about how there was i believe the guy was american um and he was sent out to fix i think it was like a transport train it was a, a freezer transport train for like frozen goods and they were like the, the train's broken right you've got to go in and he was a technician you know do whatever and he gets himself accidentally locked in this carriage and because he thinks it's you know a freezer um he thinks he's starting to freeze to death he's not got the appropriate clothing on and he starts writing on the wall like i can feel myself getting colder you know and he starts right i've not got long left he's giving it some timestamps, um and yeah eventually they they found his body in there uh, the freezer was broken it wasn't on so this guy again i heard this on a podcast i never like checked the story out but it was a it's a, it's a massive podcast so i imagine it's a legit story this guy literally talked himself into into death even though the freezer wasn't on and the temperature was was normal and whenever i heard that you know i think as coaches we know right that your thoughts can be incredibly powerful your perception can alter your alter your reality alter your physiological state but then you hear a story like that and you're like wow like that just highlights how much your 
you know, your body can hear the language you're using about yourself and the environment that you feel like you're in. And that's always the story I've then told clients when I'm trying to get them to understand the importance of, in the case that you just gave, like not using negative self-talk. That's what, if that's true, that's truly wild. That's truly wild. I need to find that out. Yeah. I'm going to Google that after. But you are, like, it's it's it's, it's a great story regardless. Um, but it's like, your thoughts become your emotions, your emotions become your behaviours. Mm. So it's very difficult to change your behaviours without changing your emotions, without changing your thoughts. So it's like, let's start with your thoughts. Let's start there because we do have some, we can't completely control our thoughts. I mean, maybe monks can, but realistically, we can't so what can we do to do our best to help manage our thoughts and how manage how much they like run away with us so things like meditation journaling developing our self-awareness having conversations with people noticing our thoughts um there's another thing that you can do called thought postponement which we do specifically around body checking but you can do it with anything where you um say you're um somebody who body checks a lot throughout the day or you have negative self-talk throughout the day. You can say, right, I'm allowed to think about this, but I'm only allowed to think about it between 5 and 5.15 tonight. So I'm going to bank that thought, and at 5pm tonight, if I still want to think about it, I'll sit for the 15 minutes and I'll give myself that time to think about it. And what's amazing is that by the time it comes to 5pm and you're like, do I really want to think about the fact that I'm critical of my stomach? Not really, so I'm not going to do that, but you have permission to do it. And the benefit of that is, one, recognising again you're not your thoughts. It's all about strengthening that that idea and two um i forgot what i was going to say <laughs> two you're not but like you're not you're not actually giving yourself that negative talk um and so it can be really really powerful and over time you just get to the point where you realize that you don't need to be doing that so anything that you can do that the the realization of you are not your thoughts is life-changing and i don't know when you realize that but there's a book called the untethered soul i don't know if you heard of yeah, it have i haven't actually it? read it but i have heard of it okay and it's it's quite cliche and, and i don't know if i would resonate with it now but when i read it five years ago or something it completely changed my life similar to Brene brown because I, I was like oh my gosh he said something michael singer said something in the book like okay so right now as you're reading this book you've got this conversation in your head and these people are in your head and it's like they're living in the attic and they're just talking non-stop and i was like gosh yeah i do have these and he said okay well why don't you tell them to be quiet i was like what and then he said you know be tell them to be quiet and i thought okay be quiet and i thought oh i don't actually have to it's your attic you can tell them yeah who knew wow. and it's and it's so wild because it's so obvious but once that once you become aware of that your whole life changes and and it's easier to do it in it's easier to do it in certain circumstances when you're regulated when you're calm and about certain things i'm good at it with food now but i'm not good about it with men for example like it, we've all got our strengths um but it's just that realization i think is huge yeah i feel like this would be as a good a time as any to kind of um admit's definitely not the right word because <laughs> but so, say you know i i ended up working with a therapist for a while um it was it was really really important for me to actually finally admit that i needed to do that um and have those sessions for about six months and now we still do one every couple of months or so just as like a check-in and you know, i don't want to take away from any of this being like we always want to make it seem like quite simple right to empower people to just take the first step and and try and work through this but at the same time your mind can be quite a complex place so why would you not seek professional help to help you kind of move through what is ultimately the most important thing that you own? Um, you know, you get, if you wanted to learn a language, you'd probably hire an instructor or at least get an app, right? If you wanted to learn an instrument, you'd get lessons. Like, okay, we have to have driving lessons. That's a bit different. But when you learn to drive, like you have, 
you know you have driving lessons so where do you see um having you know someone like a therapist come in at what point do you think people should maybe consider that because yeah if i'm being honest for me it was a good two to three years later than it ideally should have been yeah do you know what it's such a great point you can't think your way out of anxiety and depression like no i tried yeah (laughs) (laughs) haven't we all i tried too hard ironically it was part of the problem but anyway (laughs) we won't go down that road no no it's not (laughs) yeah but you're like it's such a good point like this is all kind of you know this can support your mental health but it's not these are not tools for mental illness and that's very different um so great point i think realistically if you've struggled for a long time and if if thoughts about food in your body are having a consistent negative impact on your life then i would seek therapy if you can um it's not accessible to everyone which is which is the one of the problems right but obviously i think a disclaimer here too is if you think that you're struggling with an eating disorder 100 percent um, go to your GP and they will support you with therapy. That's like a non-negotiable. If your GP hasn't been helpful, go and see another GP or self-refer through IAPT or find a private therapist. Like all of these things, are super important. Um, but I think it's it. it um, if you have access to it and you and this is having a negative impact on your life, then just do it. And I think the statistics in terms of people that go for one session of therapy and then quit are are wild like a lot oh, of really yeah a lot of people yeah that makes sense yeah and i think sometimes it's because you don't get a therapist that you really gel with and so you think well that therapy is not for me so i'm just not going to do it but persevere with it and i've been to therapy before a couple of times and i think it's important to persevere until you find someone um because instagram therapy is great but like a reel or a carousel doesn't completely overhaul the way you think it's weird really that isn't therapy yeah it's weird isn't it wow weird i've yeah, seen when i said i had therapists i actually just meant i followed a few instagram accounts yeah. no so, I, I had actually i did have actual some therapy of, some of them are great but you can convince yourself that you've just you know people self-diagnose with all sorts now because they've seen it on instagram and oh, i've healed my i've healed this because this therapist told me it was this childhood wound and it's just like is it though it might be yeah but realistically, there's no shame in therapy. I love therapy. If someone says they've been to therapy, I'm like, oh, great, you're my type of person. Like, yeah. I'm up for that. Yeah, it was, I mean, I'd love to, yeah, just frame that quickly because as you correctly said, it's very privileged to be able to afford private therapy. I understand I was very privileged to be able to afford that. It's, it's not cheap. And yeah, I had three sessions a week for like six months. So um, yeah, I understand I'm very privileged to, to be in that position to, to be able to do that. Um, what you just said there, I've kind of got two questions to that. I mean, you probably know Gary from Tried, right? I heard of him. He had someone on his podcast that was kind of talking about how a lot of this diagnosis and awareness has almost gone too far to the point where it's problematic. Um, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Like, have we maybe gone too far trying to over-diagnose people, as you said, are giving themselves Instagram diagnoses now. I feel like that's happening younger and younger. You're seeing a lot of people on TikTok being like, I've got this. And it's like, do you? So I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that and how can someone maybe... Um, how can maybe someone kind of use a bit of their self-awareness based on any questions you might be able to advise to be like, okay, is this me? Am I overanalyzing here? Have I misdiagnosed? Have I gone too far? I think the thing is don't try and diagnose yourself. Don't look at TikTok so many times that you know all of the symptoms of ADHD and then go to your doctor and say, I've got all of these symptoms of ADHD and must have ADHD. And of course, these the the assessments are relatively stringent. They know These are professional people. They know what they're doing. If you're going to get a professional diagnosis and you're not self-diagnosing, don't self-diagnose anything. It's ludicrous. You wouldn't self-diagnose yourself with a broken arm. So why are you self-diagnosing with something like again ADHD as an example? Um, so I do think I do think we have a bit of an issue with that. Do I think it 
was needed potentially it's kind of similar to the anti-diet movement i think we've got an issue within the anti-diet movement of people shaming people who want to drop body fat and saying that diets fail all the time that's a problem but do i think anti-diet was required to push back against diet culture 100 percent. and so maybe we needed this pushback so that people did feel more comfortable talking about mental health and mental illness um but then the, the thing this too is we talk, we're talking about still talking about mental health and like almost like socially acceptable neurodivergence and things like that. We're still not, we're still not normalizing things that are meant like severe mental illness. So it's like yeah we're getting better, but realistically we're only getting better on the, like the glamorous stuff and the stuff that people feel comfortable talking about. The the, the harder stuff is still like we're still not there yet. Um, I think the problem sometimes with it is that we just become very self-obsessed. So it's like, oh, I don't have a bad relationship with food anymore, but I'm so obsessed with self-awareness. Like, that's my new preoccupation. It's like, the idea is that you go and live your life now you're not preoccupied with food. Not, you go and find a new obsession to focus on and it can become quite disconnecting because we then become judgmental of other people. Like, what, you've not been to therapy? What, you don't, like, you don't follow this therapist on Instagram? Like, you don't have self-awareness. And it's like, some people don't want self-awareness. Some people are happy living their lives and... So I do think it can become, you You just think, you just constantly are finding a new thing that happened. Oh yeah, I've just seen this post on Instagram, that must have been what happened to me when I was 19 and I don't know, I had an argument with my uncle at Christmas dinner and it's like, is it though? Or are you just finding new things to pathologise? We do this in fitness all the time, we pathologise periods, we pathologise menopause, all of these things that require some consideration but don't require like this wild amount of like... um, coverage and discussion because it's just like we then treat ourselves like victims and it's like we're not victims of these things yeah no, that's a really interesting perspective and i think that's so so important whenever we're having these conversations about topics which have maybe been underserved but can often swing swing the other way um one thing you've mentioned a couple of times is like when you're giving analogies is this happened to me when i was 14 19 um how do you see generational trauma kind of fitting into this? Um, any recommendations on, on the kind of resources people could look look into in terms of like, okay, I feel like maybe some of my issues with my body image or my relationship with food maybe stem from my childhood, my parents. Um, yeah, is that something you see with clients often? For sure, for sure. And there's tons of research around it, like even basic things like, you know, kids who are forced to finish their food and finish their plates and then begin to associate fullness with a clear plate rather than their internal cues and they go on to have more disrupted relationships with food when they're older. Things like that. We know that that's true. We know that we can get, like, we can interject these values of if you're, um, okay, let's flip on a side. Let's, if your mum always complimented your dad on being muscular as a young boy, you might think, okay, well, to be loved, I need to be more muscular. Um and obviously that can be on the, the other way around too. And 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 so we can certainly interject these values. If we grow up seeing like our, our dad never eating carbohydrates, then we start to think, okay, well, grown men don't eat carbohydrates. Um, so we do, we do definitely pick these things up. I think the important thing is not blaming anybody for this. Our parents and their parents, like we're learning every generation learn something new. Our parents didn't have, didn't have access to the internet when we were babies. Well, well and I was a baby anyway. Like it's not... Why would they know not to force us to finish our vegetables at the t- dinner table? That seems very logical thing to do. And I think sometimes we we say, well, I'm a victim of diet culture. I'm a victim of this situation of like my parents made me finish my dinner table and I see all this stuff. And it's like, uh, yes, to some degree, like that d- did happen. And I'm sorry that that happened. But also you're now an adult with autonomy. You can recognise this happened let's work on this together and move through that um 
so I don't I don't honestly don't have any specific resources for this side of things because the stuff I know is from research and from working with parents and, and working with again people with parents which is obviously everyone um I think it's just about awareness and have the discussion like I have the discussion with my mum regularly about she'll say something like oh I shouldn't have had this and I'll say well why shouldn't you have that and she's like oh I don't I don't know that's a good question little things like that I just think why not have these conversations and I've got nieces now and I'll have the com- these conversations with their mum because one of them is three and they're going through all these things and she's amazed she's a therapist so she's amazing at all of this stuff and I'm like oh that's interesting that you're having that conversation and I think it's more about just opening up conversations and and realizing for herself like food guilt one is a classic example I remember once my dad made me put my my dinner leftover food in an envelope and put it in the post box to post it to the kids that couldn't afford to eat um so it's what it's ludicrous of course then we grow up and we feel guilty when we food waste but it's it's about reframing this of saying well it's a waste for you to eat things if you're not hungry can you compost it instead and it's just reframing these narratives and recognizing that everyone was doing the best from where they can but when you know better do better i think yeah that's the big one isn't it is it finishing your plate being a waste and yeah i think m- most pts are aware of that most pts use that with their clients so there, there is a book i don't know if you've heard of it called it didn't start with you yes um i've not actually read it so i can't personally vouch but there's a handful of my clients um who have and liked it and they're also the ones that were talking quite a lot about their their parents when it when these things came up in in conversation so may or may not be a good book it's one that's on my on my list to read i think i have it on my audible but i don't think i've actually i think i maybe read the first chapter and then didn't get around to the rest yeah i mean we'll uh i'll make sure i read it before this comes out <laughs> and if it's any good we'll stick it in the stick it in the show yeah. notes um but yeah no that that was awesome thank you very much the the not being a victim thing is obviously is, is so so important and and yeah i absolutely love that answer i was definitely that was me for a long time with with my mum and an interest I I didn't speak to my mum for about five years and a very interesting part of healing that relationship was learning about her upbringing which it turned out was actually uh, post-World War II Germany moving around boarding schools because her granddad was um, uh, diffusing like mines that were left from the from the war so you know she was a young girl living in boarding schools in Germany not that long oh. after World War Two. grew up speaking German I'm like that sounds traumatic wow. I, I now understand so yeah com- you know it comes back to conversations doesn't it because then you can you can empathize and, and ultimately move forwards yeah I like the idea of everyone is doing their best they can from where they are yeah. and 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 that can be quite hard and I, I, people debate me on this quite a lot because they say they'll be like well, what about murderers and everything else and and I'll say well that's what they know and I don't think that that it excuses any sort of behavior but I do believe that with the tools that we've got given we we're trying to do our best and if someone's not doing their best there's a reason that they're not doing their best and I just think that's the compassion way of thinking and I also think even if that's not true isn't that just a nicer headspace to live in like I just feel like I'm much more I think it's much more peaceful to to think like that and on a very surface level of like our parents making us finish our dinner like our food like that they were doing they were thinking they were getting all our nutrients in us like come on we really can't blame them for that it's just it's there's no no benefit of blaming people for it it's like what can we do how I interpret that though is in order to facilitate that compassion and, and viewing it from like an alternative standpoint you, you need to have that space which then comes back to the journaling and meditation which obviously you've 
yeah hammered home the importance of because for me i found that when when i when i know that when i didn't think like that and i was always a little bit why why are people doing this to me you know, had that victim mindset it was also when i wasn't doing any of the techniques to help create space um it was also when i was doing 50 pts a week working 80 hours a week which didn't help in terms of like literal space <laughs> but uh, also as a result of being busy with that therefore didn't have the time to kind of create that space which i now deem very important to my mental well-being um and yeah i feel like you know, a pretty different person over the last kind of four to five years, to be honest, as a result of that. So if someone's pushed back to you on all of this, because you've covered so much absolutely incredible stuff, comes back to um, just basically time, busy priorities, which, um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I imagine is what you hear from a lot of your new clients, like I do from mine, where, what what kind of would you say to them? How do you meet them where they're at to start implementing some of this stuff if someone is busy, doesn't deem it important, has other things going on? Uh, great question. I, you know, I actually get it a little bit less with mine because I think people that come to work with me know what I'm going to say to them. So they know I'm going to say, okay, let's think about journaling. They know it's coming, yeah. so they're kind of a bit more open to it. So I think one thing is if you are a PT or a coach, make sure that you're talking about the things that you do. Yeah, because if, if someone came to me and I said, right, okay, we're going to start measuring your blood glucose, they'd be like, huh? Well, I don't really have time to do that stuff because I don't, because I, well, one, because it's rubbish, but two, like I don't talk about it. So if you implement things with your clients and you use things for yourself, talk about them and talk about the importance of them all the time. So by the time someone comes to work with you, they don't need any buy in. They're, they're, they know why it's important. Um, but then I think, like, that people think that meditation has to be like this 30 minute set of like silence and cross legged and candles and incense. And it's like, meditation can be when you're stuck in a traffic jam you're just going to sit in the traffic jam and rather than getting pissed off that you're in a traffic jam you're going to spend that two minutes five minutes noticing your breath that's all that's all turn your music off notice your breath it doesn't take any extra time or something i've been doing recently when i've been busy is doing like mindful runs there's a spotify track that's got like a metronome oh cool and it's really cool and, and you run to the metronome and then you align your breath to your steps oh i love that very I've cool never heard of that yeah, it's called um, guided, oh gosh, guided metronome running, I think, for beginners or something like that. And so I'll go, for, it's 20 minutes, I'll go for a 20 minute run, do do that at the same time, come back and it's like, oh, I've done some mindfulness work and my run in 20 minutes and that's it. It's the same as what you do with training, right? If someone says I don't have time to go to the gym, it's like, right, we'll do three 30 minute sessions, full body, superset, done. And, and to be fair with a lot of my clients, that is the type of stuff that we'll do now. So when I first started coaching, I would be like, I was always programming six days a week training a week, five days training a week, because I was coming from a bodybuilding background and everyone knew that that's how much I trained. So everyone was like, oh, let's do like that. And now most of my clients will, will range between three and five days, but a lot of them will do three days because they do 10 minutes of yoga two days a week. And then they'll also do meditation and journaling. And these things do take time. But when you're looking at health, health is again like coming back to what i was saying earlier health is not just going to the gym it's like about how can i maximize the benefit in the least amount of time and things like if you've got kids can you do gratitude at dinner table so you know let's all eat mindfully together what does your how does your tummy feel what kind of flavors can you taste what textures do you feel in your mouth what does it smell like what are you grateful for today these are all things that you can incorporate within your family dynamic that don't take any extra time um same with like you can have little mindful moments and you can go for a walk with your kids and you can be like okay tell me one thing you can see tell me one thing you can smell tell me one thing you can hear all of these things and I, and that's much more of an applied approach to like mindfulness and, and compassion and it's it's also healthier because you're bringing in connection and stuff like that so I think it's thinking outside the box and not just saying to your client you are going to meditate 
10 minutes every single day for the next seven days like it's just or you're going to journal every single day like most people don't have time for that stuff and just because you do a morning routine of breath work ice baths and going for a run most people don't want to do that they don't have the time to do that yeah the disconnect between the 20 something year old personal trainer and the the 40 however your old mum is, is is funny in the fitness industry. Yeah, but I, if I, I think back, I don't know if you do this, but like I think back to myself even five years ago and I would think, well, everyone's got time to just go to the gym for for five days a week. Like, what else are you doing? And it's like, what the hell, of course. Yeah. I, don't, I don't have time to go to the gym five days a week now. I mean, I probably could make time, but it's ludicrous. And that's partly just getting older, right, of your, like, your own life stages, but, but still. I absolutely love your little commentary on your like push pull like full body supersets like <laughs> they're, they're, they're good fun and I think that I mean there's a couple of things I'd love to highlight there the first one for any PTs listening is as you said like the content you put out really really matters I got asked this the other day when I was doing a talk someone was like it seems like you know there's a bit to your check-ins and your onboarding process how do you get clients to do that and I was like no one's looking at my content and not expecting that they know that if I'm putting out content and I'm like, hey, as a personal trainer, we should probably have conversations about and consider some of this stuff, such as, you know, do you have a cycle? If you don't, that's a problem. We need to talk about that. Lots of identity stuff, mindset stuff. No one's coming to me and expecting to have a really quick onboarding process because they are seeing as a result of the content I put out and the testimonials that I share, they're seeing that that layer of information, right? So that kind of sounds so obvious, but when I answered that question, you know, sometimes someone asks you a question and you answer it and everyone's sitting there a bit like mind blown and you're like, okay, to me, that seemed really obvious. But everyone's, I don't think anyone's sitting there. I only had 11 people at this talk. I don't think one of them had really thought about how your content should be a reflection of your coaching process so that you get the right person signing wow. up. So I just kind of want, because I, I love that answer that you gave. So I just wanted to highlight that. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing which I absolutely loved was, well, I mean, what you kind of said there, right, was, you know, three times a week for some people is probably better than five times a week if you use those other two slots a week that they might have available to do some of these techniques we've been talking about and i guess you could summarize that as because you can't change anything from a place of unless you're coming from a place of compassion as, as you've spoke about so yeah i mean what would you say to someone that is thinking hard is better when it comes to training more frequently is better when it comes to training how would you get them to shift some of that time spent from the gym to maybe some of this work which ultimately would be more beneficial for them long term Great question. And I think sometimes it can be really hard, especially if it's all you've known, like being critical, doing more cardio, being in the gym more times. Like it, it, it's it's hard to shift from that. And yeah. I think it's... Sounds like contest prep, doesn't it? So Yeah, we've definitely been there, right? Yeah. So I think it's about just being quite um, flexible and patient with yourself and with your clients about it. So some of my clients will just do five minutes of yoga after they've been in the gym, like, but they'll still do it in the gym. And to me, that's not 100% ideal because you're not getting the... Like the mental or the psychological benefits of yoga when you're in a loud environment and you're mm. kind of rushed through it but it's better than nothing so let's start there and like tr- and transition through it with yoga and journaling and things fr- the framing of this is going to help your relationship with food it's probably going to help your fat loss if you're on a fat loss journey and you've got a better relationship with food you're more likely to lose fat you're more likely to maintain fat loss we also know that self-compassion is associated with lower bmis like so developing your self-compassion it's not being more compassionate is not going to help you lose weight. Like as a, there's no randomised controlled trials or meta-analysis that say this leads to this, but we know it's associated, right? So if you can say like, well, look, you struggled last weekend when you overate, you felt really guilty and then you overate some more. What would be really helpful here is some self-compassion. One way to develop self-compassion is doing some self-compassionate journaling or to do some yoga or to do some mindfulness work. All of these things are going to help you in those moments. So 
can you see the benefit of doing that now even though you hate it and they say yeah we'll say, okay let's bring it in like a little bit at a time so it's for us kind of comes back to what we were saying earlier about picking stuff that's nothing to do with nutrition fitness and, and implementing it in it's the same sort of thing of like what's important to your client okay well how does this tie into what's important to them if I'm working with a parent and they want to be less like get less irritated with their kids I'll say well meditation is so good for that because it helps you respond not react um so even if you don't want to do it for yourself Maybe you could start doing it because you want to show up for your kids in a certain way and they're like, okay, I see the benefits. So I think that's the thing of just thinking, what's this client's values? And if you don't know your client's values, you need to have that conversation with them. And if they don't know their values, they need to figure those out. Okay, well, how can I make all of these things relevant to what they say is important to them, not what I think is important for them? I mean, Yeah, it makes complete sense. I love that so much. I've actually had a couple of my clients that have started bringing their kids to, to sessions nice. and um yeah, I just think it's so cool. Yeah, so, that's cool. No, I love that answer. Uh, I've got kind of one more question for you, if that's okay, Amelia. And I know that this in itself could be a whole a whole episode. So I'm very conscious of your time. You know, a shortish answer would be absolutely fine. But for anyone that's maybe struggling to understand how they can work on compassion, self-love, body image, but simultaneously uh, also achieve weight loss, any advice that you would give to that person that feels like that's a bit of a contradiction, they're not sure how to achieve both, they maybe feel guilty for wanting to lose a bit of body fat or have body composition goals because of maybe this swing that we're seeing in the industry towards body acceptance? Yeah, good question. I think one of the signs of emotional maturity is being able to hold space for two opposing things. And so holding space for the fact that sometimes diets fail, sometimes diets are bad, but also sometimes diets are good, important. Holding space for, um, okay, I don't necessarily love everything that about the way that I look, but I can still love my body for what it allows. Really important. Um, I, I think there, like it's a false dichotomy to say you can't be compassionate and kind to yourself and lose weight, or you can't love yourself and lose weight. Often, especially if you're somebody maybe who's benefiting from healthful habits, maybe you're in a larger body and fat loss might be helpful for you. Fat loss is actually potentially a really loving thing that you can do, provided that you're doing it in a healthful way. That is actually a really potentially loving and respectful thing that you're, for your do, that you're doing for yourself. If you're in a health, quote, quote, healthy BMI range and you've already got healthy habits and you're trying to lose body fat, um, it's not necessarily, to be totally frank, it's not the most loving thing you can do to diet when you're already in a healthy body. It's not. However, what is loving is saying, what's important to me is to be in a leaner body and it's a loving thing to to act in line with your own goals and your own purpose and your own values. Not martyr yourself or not let other people rule what you do. So is the physical act of dieting when you're healthy a self-love act? Not really. It's not. And that's maybe changed a little bit from my answer maybe in the past. But is it loving to do what's right for you? For sure it is. So maybe just frame it like that. Think. yeah brilliant no two truths can, can coexist in that instance can't they as long as you're coming at it from a healthy place with with self-awareness so yeah no i love that and that's really refreshing to hear you know weight loss can be healthy it can be actually a good thing to do that, that yeah it's something sometimes people should should aim for so yeah and anyone that's listen anyone that says diets don't work all the time or diets are always bad for you just unfollow them because they're talking nonsense like there's some really good accounts out there that talk about like body shaming and diet culture and they're so good and then they come out with like 95% of diets failed no one should ever diet and then it's like you've just ruined it for everyone because you've you've just lost all nuance and you've just tainted it with this like this really dichotomous like black or white 
language so when you see that stuff just know that there's that's not right black and white around this stuff is never right yeah no i can obviously completely agree that's why we work in the personal training industry of course <laughs> so um i mean thank you so much for sharing all of that that uh, was thought provoking <laughs> i'm going to go away and question a few things about myself and my coaching which i feel incredibly grateful for to have had that conversation with you so thank you so much and very excited to, to get this out there i'd love to finish up just by knowing a little bit more about where obviously everyone can find out your services what you're up to coming up um if your coaches have availability and yeah anything else that you'd like to share sure so thanks for having me and um, the best thing is instagram for me amelia thompson phd and if you're a pt eiq underscore nutrition we actually have level up events as well. We run two events a year, myself and Emma Story Gordon, and they're they're just the best. It's like PTs and coaches all come together to learn from experts and obviously myself and Emma. Um and it's they're fantastic. They're in April and then there'll be another one later in the year. Um and you, my website is Amelia.fitness. So I have a lot of stuff on there too. I've got loads of free resources on there too, um, on the education page on my website. So you can get lots of stuff there. Yeah, you do. There is loads. I didn't actually quite, um, quite realise how many you actually had on there until I looked um, whenever we, we put the episode in. So yeah, there's a lot of resources on there. So for anyone listening that maybe thinks that was a lot of great information, how do I start working through it? There, there's yeah, lo- loads on the website. So check that out. We'll obviously make sure that all of that goes in the show notes. So Amelia, thank you so much for being here. Enjoy uh, your talk tomorrow and I will speak with you soon. Thank you so much.